0: Today's case is open and active. If you have information that can help, resources can be found at the end of this episode. Humans have mapped out much of the Earth's surface, but there are still areas so remote and so dangerous, they remain, for the most part, untouched. You and I will probably never go but there are people out there who are driven to travel further than anyone before them to venture into the unknown, even though they know they may never return. Ben McDaniel was one of those people. In 2010, he dove into the depths of an underwater cavern and never came up for air. It appeared to be a tragic accident, but after rescue teams couldn't find a body, it paved the way for other possibilities and open the door to a mystery that's as deep as the cave itself. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. While reading through Ben's case, I couldn't help but think about how cave diving is a lot like investigating a missing person's case. It's dark, isolating. You're never really sure if you're headed in the right direction, but you keep moving forward, searching for new openings or signs of life. The deeper you go, the easier it is to get lost, to forget which way is forward and which is out. But if you just keep going, there's always the chance you'll find something.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
0: Ben McDaniel grows up in Collierville, Tennessee in a tight-knit family, the kind that has sit-down dinners almost every night. Ben's the oldest of three, all boys, and a great role model for his brothers. He's sweet, charismatic, and affectionate. In one of their articles, the Tampa Bay Times says he holds his mom's hand in public until he's in the sixth grade, which if you know kids that age, you know that's a big deal. Though the McDaniels live in Tennessee, they vacation in Florida, and that's where Ben's parents watch him fall in love with the water, skipping along the shoreline, picking up sand dollars, bobbing up and down with his snorkeling gear, looking for fish in the shallows. Then, years later, when Ben's 14, they watch him fall in love with the water all over again when he tries the sport that would eventually transform his life, scuba diving. I've never been scuba diving myself, but from what I've read and seen, it looks like entering a whole other world. The ocean is this infinite wash of grayish blue stretched out in front of you. It feels like you're weightless in the water, and the only sounds you hear are your own long, steady breaths. When you inhale, you float up, and when you breathe out, you sink. It's meditative, but it requires a lot of focus. You have to pay attention to so many things at once, your oxygen levels, your buoyancy, your depth, and you need to check and double check your gear before you even really think about getting wet. Because once you're down there, you can't hit a reset button. But despite the risks, or maybe because of them, Ben falls in love with diving. He also enjoys other adventure sports, and he's not the only one in his family. His youngest brother, Paul, is a thrill seeker too. Together, they plan all kinds of mountaineering and rock climbing trips and bond over their shared experiences. Despite a six-year age gap, the two become incredibly close, brothers who also happen to be best friends. By high school, Ben can't imagine a future that doesn't involve exploring. He dreams of becoming a professional scuba instructor one day. He tells his mom that he wants to build a house over the water with a floor that's made entirely of glass. From the moment he wakes up, the ocean will always be right there beneath his feet. It's a beautiful dream, but as Ben gets older, decisions about the future get a bit more complicated and he basically has to decide whether he's going to follow his head or his heart. And in the end, he chooses his head he takes the more traditional path and goes into business. After high school, he starts his own construction company and gets married. The business is pretty successful. It pays the bills and keeps him busy. And because he only has to answer to himself, he can carve out time for adventures and to have a personal life. So throughout his 20s, his relationship with his brother Paul remains as strong as ever. But after he turns 28... All of that changes in an instant. In late 2008, the McDaniels can't get in touch with Paul. He's not picking up his phone. And when they drive to his house, Paul doesn't answer their calls. Ben runs up to his brother's bedroom and finds Paul lying there in bed unresponsive. Ben tries everything he can, but it's no use. Paul's dead at just 22 years old. His death shocks and devastates the McDaniel family. Nothing can prepare you for losing a family member, especially so young. In a tearful interview, Patty said, quote, it's like you have to build a new normal. You know, nothing is ever the same. That's especially true for Ben. He becomes withdrawn and depressed. And unfortunately, his brother's passing is just one part of a very difficult period in his life. Within a year, his construction business goes under, his wife leaves him, and he moves back in with his parents. People close to him see him cry in public more than ever. It's clear to everyone around him that he's in a dark place. To try to pull him out of it, Ben's mom Patty suggests he maybe take a sabbatical and go down to their condo in Florida, stay by the water for a while, and be somewhere that brings him joy, where he first learned to scuba dive, It'll be a chance to rest, reset, and reconnect. So in 2010, Ben moves from Tennessee to the Panhandle, along with his dog, a chocolate lab named Spooner. He works toward his old dream of becoming a scuba diving instructor, and life starts looking up. Within a few months, he logs 250 dives, which puts him well on his way to getting his teaching certification. But more importantly, his sabbatical gives him a new lease on life. Ben goes back to Tennessee on August 16th, 2010 for his mom's birthday. The McDaniel family eats dinner together just like they used to. All through the meal, Ben beams with gratitude and thanks his mom for giving him the space and opportunity to pursue this new path. And he tells them about his next big adventure, cave diving, He leaves right after dinner to prep for the excursion, telling his parents he loves them on his way out. For Patty and her husband Shelby, it's touching to see their son doing so well. What Patty and Shelby don't know is that of all recreational scuba divers, only 1% are considered properly equipped to cave dive because it's so dangerous. When you cave dive, you swim through underwater chambers that can be unstable. Ceilings can collapse with no warning. Caves can bend and twist, making you lose all sense of direction. With silt drifting around, the water can go from crystal clear to blinding in a matter of seconds. So it can be incredibly difficult to find your way out. But that obviously doesn't deter Ben. Two days later on August 18th, he drives his pickup truck to Ponce de Leon, Florida, where there's a crystal blue swimming hole. Beneath it is an underwater cave called Vortex Spring. And while all cave dives are risky, in case you couldn't tell by its name, Vortex Spring is next level. The underwater passageways extend 1,500 feet, or about the length of five football fields, and they travel 150 feet below the surface. Some of the most narrow passageways measure just 10 inches from floor to ceiling, so divers have to wear oxygen tanks on their sides to squeeze through. Even then, the sharp walls can snag hoses, tanks, and cut through skin. Not to mention, the cave system is only partially charted. At a certain point, you're traveling into the unknown. In the 80s, Vortex Spring claimed the lives of 13 divers. That morning, Ben makes some short exploratory dives into the chambers, testing his equipment and logging notes in his journal. He's basically making his own map, diving in for a bit, then coming back up to chart it out little by little. Now, even though diving is always safest to do with a partner, Ben's doing this alone, but he's confident he's taking things slow, making sure he knows where he's going, at least for a while. As night begins to fall, Ben decides to take advantage of the thinning crowds and hit the water again. He straps on his equipment and wades into the spring. He puts his respirator in his mouth, releases the air in his buoyancy vest, and leaves the surface behind.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some...
0: It's August 18th, 2010. Ben McDaniel dives deep into Florida's vortex spring and swims into the mouth of the cave. His flashlights illuminate the dust floating in the water. Fish and eels swim past him on all sides. As he travels deeper into the cavern, the walls around him get closer and closer. Then he sees a couple divers he knows, Chuck Cronin and Eduardo Taron. They pass by on their way out of the cave. I'm not sure what their interaction is like. I imagine they wave to each other or something. There's no one else around, but then they carry on in opposite directions. About 300 feet into the cave, Ben reaches a locked gate, which is more like a net of weathered rusty iron rods all welded together. Before the gate, there's a sign jutting out of the cave floor that reads, quote, Stop. There's nothing in this cave worth dying for. Do not go beyond this point. The words are in all caps and next to them is an illustration of a grim reaper holding a scythe with images of dead scuba divers at its feet, still saddled with their oxygen tanks. Normally to get past this point, Ben would need to show his cave diving certificate to the people who run the dive shop. They'd give him a key But since Ben isn't certified yet, every time he gets to this point, it's believed he squeezes his body through the rods to get past. But this time, the gate's unlocked. Eduardo, one of the divers he passed on the way in, left it that way, knowing Ben would try to get through regardless. He might as well make it safer for him. Two days later on Friday morning, Eduardo shows up to Vortex Spring, and sees Ben's pickup parked where it was the day before. His mind jumps to the worst case scenario. What if Ben never made it out of the cave? By the afternoon, the idyllic swimming hole has turned into a crime scene. Deputies string yellow tape around the lake. They comb through Ben's truck and find his logbook and wallet. And the wallet has a significant amount of cash inside. According to the Tampa Bay Times, it's around $1,100. Later that day in Tennessee, a sheriff arrives at the McDaniels' doorstep, but before Patty can even answer, her legs give out and she has to sit, like she knows bad news is coming, before the words even escape the sheriff's mouth. The sheriff says they found Ben's truck, but they can't find Ben. Patty and Shelby drop everything and head to Florida, After losing Paul two years prior, they're desperate to find their oldest son. But when they arrive, there's not much they can do. They pace on the water's edge while a team of expert divers search. Every time they see bubbles rise to the surface, they hope it's good news. But after hours underwater, the rescue teams only find three decompression chambers, some marked with Ben's name. It's not a good sign. Decompression chambers help divers alleviate the nitrogen that builds up in their bodies while deep underwater and are most often used while trying to surface. Ben likely would have needed them. On the second day of searching, divers didn't find anything else. But on day three, someone who might be able to help catches wind of Ben's disappearance. His name is Ed Sorensen, and he's one of the best recovery divers in the world. With thousands of dives under his belt, he's rescued dozens of people who'd gotten lost or trapped in underwater cave systems. But even still, fellow divers warn Ed about Vortex Spring, including fellow representatives from Florida's International Underwater Cave Rescue and Recovery. One of Ed's friends tells him they almost died there, and yet he remains determined. As he put it in his own words, quote, if there was any chance that someone was in there, I felt I needed to go and assist in getting him out." Ed travels to Vortex Spring, straps on his gear and dives in, prepared to go further into the cave than anyone before him. To help, Ed brings a sea scooter with him, which you might've seen before. It's a small handheld machine that has an engine and propeller system. They allow divers to travel faster and exert less energy underwater. The idea is that it'll give Ed maximum time to explore, Ed flies past the gate and surges deep into Vortex Spring. He shimmies through holes so small he can barely get his head through. A reporter for the Tampa Bay Times describes it like crawling beneath a car, belly to floor, his back scraping against the limestone. And he makes it 200 feet past the edge of the official map, the one Ben had likely been using and adding to. It's 1,700 feet from the mouth of the cave. Looking around, he sees marks in the limestone from where other recovery divers had been. So Ed crawls another 20 feet forward to check what he can find. And there's nothing, no scuff marks, no forgotten gear, no sign of Ben's body. According to Ed, the cave is totally devoid of life, which itself feels significant. See, Ben's a big guy, If he'd been in the area, you'd expect to see scuff marks along the cave walls, some type of wear and tear from Ben's equipment scraping against the surroundings, and the presence of human remains would likely attract wildlife. So when Ed surfaces, he tells the McDaniels that he checked every nook and cranny and believes their son isn't in the cave. The news is devastating. It's the beginning of a different kind of not knowing. Up until this point, everyone had assumed the answers to Ben's disappearance lay somewhere below the surface hidden in that cave. But after 16 divers tried and failed to find them, it becomes clear to officials. The scope of their investigation needs to widen. Police captain Harry Hamilton calls in two canine units. One cadaver dog signals the presence of remains in the water reacting strongly along the shore. Another tries to swim down toward the scent. Water samples are sent to a lab, but the results are mixed. The decomposition that the dogs reacted to isn't necessarily human. In fact, the wastewater operator tests the water nearly 30 times and can't find any bacteria that would indicate the presence of human remains. He told the Tampa Bay Times, quote, "'I hate it for the parents, "'but to say a man is down there, in my opinion,
1: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
0: In August 2010, Ben McDaniel disappears after going diving in an underwater cave system in Florida called Vortex Spring. But all evidence seems to suggest that wherever he is, he's no longer in the water. So after rescue divers spend days looking below the surface, a new search begins on dry land. Ben's family hires a private investigator named Lynn Marie Carty, who entertains the possibility that Ben's disappearance could have been a result of foul play. See, Vortex Spring may look like an idyllic, family-friendly paradise, but it's also home to some interesting characters, like the owner of the Vortex Spring dive shop, a man named Lowell Kelly. When Cardi looks into Lowell's past, she finds a criminal record. A year before Ben went missing, he apparently drove a man to a secluded gator pond near Vortex Spring. He accused the man of stealing $30,000 and then attacked him with a baseball bat. Luckily, the man managed to escape and ran away into the woods. Police charged Lowell with aggravated battery and a judge sentenced him to seven years probation. He was awaiting trial for this when Ben disappeared and apparently told investigators a strange story about what happened that night. He claimed that a wild-eyed man showed up to his shop, asking if it was too late to go diving. Now, I'm not sure how much investigators follow up on that story, but a year or so after Ben's disappearance, Lowell dies under mysterious circumstances. The details are a little murky, so bear with me. But as others have reported, Lowell's found in his bathtub one day, covered by a blanket completely unconscious. He then spends the next month or so in a coma before he passes away. And the details about how he ended up in the bathtub are just as strange. As the story goes, he fell down a flight of stairs at a local party and hit his head. Someone at the party presumably drove him home, helped him shower, and then left him there to recover, I guess but no one knows who that someone is and authorities haven't released the name of whoever found him in the bathtub. The sheriff's office hasn't released any information about Lowell's autopsy or much from the incident report, citing that the case is still ongoing. So with such little to go on, it's hard to say how or if any of it's connected to Ben's disappearance. And it's important to note When Captain Hamilton checks the security cameras from the dive shop, he doesn't see anything suspicious. No wild-eyed man, no evidence of a struggle. So as suspect as the details about Lowell's life and death seem, they could easily be red herrings. Not to mention, if Ben was robbed, kidnapped, or worse, why would the perpetrator leave his wallet and cash untouched, The money is one of the reasons some of Ben's fellow divers propose a different theory about why no one can find his body. Maybe Ben never died in the first place. Maybe he staged his own death. Now, as I mentioned, when Ben graduated high school, he started his own construction company. But in 2008, when the recession hit, he brought on a business partner with hopes of bringing in new clients. And instead of helping, this partner ended up siphoning customers away from Ben's company. So much that after 12 years of business, Ben had to shut down his company. According to Ben's family, as he tried to climb out of debt, his financial situation only got worse. At the time of his disappearance, according to Tampa Bay Times reporter, Ben Montgomery, Ben owed the IRS about $50,000. This is in addition to his other debts, which he apparently told his parents totaled about half a million dollars. It's one of the reasons Ben sold his house and moved in with his parents. It also took a toll on his marriage and played a role in his separation from his wife. So some have suggested that between his brother's death, the money he owed and his relationship falling apart, maybe Ben wanted a way out. Maybe he made it look like he died in the cave so he could secretly re-enter the world again, debt-free. It sounds like something straight out of a movie, I know. But remember those decompression tanks found near the mouth of the cave? Well, when officials tested the contents, two of them weren't full. One was at half capacity. Normally, a cave diver would make sure that all three tanks were completely full before attempting the dive for safety reasons. Ben may have been fearless, but he wasn't reckless. So what if those half-empty tanks weren't meant to be used at all? What if they were props to make it seem like Ben drowned? When divers looked at the maps that Ben drew of Vortex Spring, some didn't match the actual layout of the cave. To some, it was almost like Ben wanted it to look like he was diving really deep into the cave. But maybe he wasn't. It is something to consider, but not everyone entertains that theory, and that includes Ben's family. The McDaniels are confident he didn't stage his death. His bank statements and phone records have been inactive since the day he disappeared, and they don't think he would have left behind his beloved dog, Spooner. But perhaps more importantly, Ben knew how much pain his younger brother's death caused his family. They don't think he would have ever put them through that again, at least not on purpose. A year after Ben's disappearance, that leaves the McDaniels with only one place to search, the cave. While rescue divers have poured through every nook and cranny and assure the family Ben's not there, his parents can't help but wonder what might've been overlooked. By spring of 2011, they raise a $10,000 reward for anyone willing to dive into the depths of Vortex Spring and find Ben. Over time, the reward triples. But then in March 2012, a 43-year-old diver named Larry Higginbotham drowns in Vortex Spring and the McDaniels rescind the offer. Though Larry reportedly wasn't incentivized by the money, they don't wanna contribute to another tragedy, no matter how badly they want answers but there's one last recovery effort that I think is worth mentioning. A year after Ben's disappearance, documentary filmmaker, Jill Heinerth, sets out to give Ben's family closure. Jill is a true crime director and a world-renowned technical diver who's been in some of the most inhospitable environments on the planet. In fact, she's traveled further into caves underwater than any woman in history. Armed with a camera, Jill and a fellow diver head into Vortex Spring, They swim into the belly of the underwater cave, past the gate, and continue until they can't anymore. And there, in the deepest reaches of the cave, Jill finds an army-issued folding shovel, barely visible against a wall. There's no way to know for sure whether the tool belonged to Ben, but his family believes it did. They say he often took a small shovel with him on dives. Before the dive, Jill wasn't sure if Ben was in the cave, She ultimately decides it isn't likely, but says there's a slight possibility, about a 1% chance that he could be down there, tucked into a small crevice nobody can access, waiting to be found. Sometimes, if the worst case scenario happens in a cave dive, say a person gets stuck or lost, they can panic, and while looking for a way out, they can actually burrow deeper they can end up in places so small and remote that it doesn't seem possible a human could fit. And that obviously makes them difficult to find. As I said at the beginning of this episode, cave diving is a lot like investigating missing persons cases. As you go deeper and deeper, you can find yourself down rabbit holes you never imagined taking. You'll always find something, but a clear or satisfying ending isn't guaranteed. Ben's family may not know what happened to him, but they do believe he's dead. Since he disappeared, they've held a memorial service, adopted Spooner, and formed a support group for other grieving parents. During one visit to Vortex Spring, Patty approached Eduardo Taren, the diver who left the gate open for Ben on the day he disappeared. She handed Eduardo a granite slab, engraved with the words, Ben McDaniel, 1980 to 2010, beloved son and brother. She asked Eduardo if he'd take it into the cave. Eduardo agreed. He pointed to a small chamber on a map of the cave and told her, quote, we're going to name this Ben's room. The words make Patty cry. A mixture of gratitude, grief, and acceptance. She later told a reporter, there can't be closure when we don't know anything. Maybe that's our new reality. That there are no answers. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Ben McDaniel, please contact the Holmes County Sheriff's Office at 850-547-3681. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. Among the many sources we use for this episode, we found the article, When a Diver Goes Missing, A Deep Cave is Seen of a Deeper Mystery by Ben Montgomery, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Ben Caro, edited by Karis Allen and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.